Welcome to Orphan Entertainment, the podcast who for the past 10 years has dedicated itself to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher, and with me is a woman who will always be at the top of my social ladder. It's Lydia. <laughs> yeah, I know. I... Sorry. It's the best I could do. <laughs> I wasn't sure what with the... All, with all the charm of the Napoleonic army? No? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's much better. <laughs> with manners that rival the Regency. Ooh. <laughs> I should start you. Le- I should start letting you write your own puns. Write my own. Or write my puns. I <laughs> say. Well, it's a pleasure to see you as always. Yeah, uh, you too, Lydia. It's so <laughs> wonderful to talk to you once again. Uh, before we go any further, I want to first thank everyone for listening to this month's episode. You likely already know this, but Orphan Entertainment is available wherever you can get your podcast, and wherever you listen, if you have the option to do so, please rate and review the show. It really does help get the show out to more people. Another great way to help is just by sharing the episode you're listening to on whatever social media platform you use. You can follow the link in the show notes to all our social media sites, our YouTube channel, and you can learn how you can support the show financially. If you'd like to email us with any comments, suggestions, or feedback on this or any episode, please type or record a message and send it to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com. And you can also find all these links on our webpage. That's orphanedentertainment.com. Let's take a short break and listen to a five-minute mystery. And when we return, we will have a colorful conversation on 1935's Becky Sharp. Another five-minute mystery. Scarcely said a word all the way home. What do you want me to say? Just that we're still friends. That everything will be just the same in spite of the fact... In spite of the fact that you've changed your mind about marrying me? Oh, Bill, please. It's just that I need more time. Isn't it better to make sure now? After we're married, would be too late. But how can a girl... Oh, well, I I guess I can take it. Here's my house. Is this going to be our last goodbye? Oh, Bill, it's not that bad. We're still going to be the same. At least I hope... stick them up. Bill! Hand over your wallet, fella, and that purse, lady. Hey, what's this all about? Don't mind to talk, buddy. Just do as you're told. Lady, I'll take that jewelry. I've got my ring. Please. I said... And that's how it happened, Inspector. He just stepped off the curb out of nothingness and... And before I knew what had happened, he'd shot her. It was terrible, Inspector. When I got to the car, my daughter was dead. Well, how soon after the shot did Mr. Larson ring your bell, Mrs. Kay? Oh, it was a very short time. Uh, tell me exactly what happened after that. Well, Bill was standing there white as a ghost. He muttered something to me. Something like, Mrs. Kay, Helen's been shot. Call the police. And uh, you did? I made the call, Inspector, and Mrs. Kay ran out to the car. At first, I, I couldn't believe that she was really dead. 
She just seemed to be sitting there, quiet like in the car. Even when I opened the car door... You mean there was no sign of a wound? I didn't see it at first. I started to take her hand and speak to her. But it was already cold. And then I saw a pool of blood in the middle of the front seat. And knew she was dead. Please, Inspector, I think Mrs. Kay's taking just about as much of this questioning as she can take. I'm all right, Neil. I won't rest until this whole thing is settled. Until the man who murdered my daughter is behind bars. I understand how you feel, Mrs. Kay. And I'm happy to say I don't think you'll have too long to wait. Uh, what do you mean, Inspector? You mean they found some clues? Not only clues, Mr. Larson. We've found the murderer. It's been right under our nose the whole time. Are you trying to be funny at a time like this? Hardly, Mr. Larson. What do you mean by that statement, then? Just this, Mr. Larson. I'm arresting you for the murder of Miss Helen Kay. How did Inspector Clark know that Bill Larson had murdered Helen Kay? Do you know the clue? In a moment, we'll hear, but first... Welcome to The Rating Room. The Rating Room is a new weekly podcast hosted by Jay and Andy. In Season 1, we'll be re-watching and discussing one of the biggest movie franchises of all time. We are re-watching the James Bond movies. Who is the deadliest Bond actor? Who are our favourite Bond girls? How did the movies perform at the box office? You can follow us on the usual social media channels by searching The Rating Room on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and YouTube. You can also find more information on our website, www.theratingroom.com. You can find the show notes on our website, plus we have pages dedicated to each of the ratings and rankings, which are updated on a weekly basis. Make sure to subscribe to The Rating Room, wherever you find your favourite podcast. And now, back to our mystery. Mr. Larson, you were insanely jealous over that girl. When she told you that she had fallen for someone else, you couldn't take it. Besides, your fake story had a hole in it a mile wide. You said that the murderer stepped off the curb while the car was parked in front of Helen's house. That would be on Helen's side of the car. But Mrs. K testified, and I can verify it myself, that the bloodstains were in the middle of the seat. If the shot had come from Helen's side of the car, as you said, the bullet wound would have been on the right side near her door and not on the middle of the seat, the side nearest you. Come on, Larson, you're going for another ride. But this one will be your last. Becky Sharp is a 1935 historical drama. Well, we'll call it a drama. <laughs> directed <laughs> by Ruben Mamoyan and stars Miriam Hopkins, who was nominated for an Academy Award for her performance as the title character. Other supporting cast include Francis D., who we saw in 1934's Of Human Bondage, Cedric Hardwick, and his name sounded really familiar, and I thought we may have seen him in a previous film, but it wasn't anything that I could find. He was a very prolific actor, so it's likely I've just come across his name in casual viewing of some film somewhere. Uh, Billy Burke is in this, and she is known for being Glinda the Good Witch in The Wizard of Oz. And Nigel Bruce, who may be best known for his portrayal of Dr. Watson in several Sherlock Holmes films and radio programs, and also for appearing in Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca and Suspicion. 
Becky Sharp is based on the stage play of the same name, which in turn was based on the 19 or on the 1848 novel Vanity Fair by William Makepeace uh, Thackeray. This film was the first feature film shot entirely on the new three-strip Technicolor process. Some color was used in earlier films, but those typically used the two-strip process or were hand-tinted. Little information from the Eastman Museum website over at eastman.org. Technicolor's two-color subtractive camera was designed by 27-year-old Joseph Arthur Ball in 1921. It used a beam-splitting prism behind the lens to divide light into two paths, half with filtered red and half green. These two color records were then captured onto black and white film, one above the other. These film strips were glued together back-to-back by a special cementing machine, creating a film stock with emulsions on both sides. These new submitted prints could be run on any standard projector. Because this technique used only two colors, the process was incapable of replicating accurate blues, purples, and yellows. The three-color process was similar to the two-color, but incorporated a blue tint as well, allowing the camera to capture crisp and vibrant colors. I will have a link in the show notes to the website page on the three-color process that includes a video tour of the camera, as well as a PDF of a copy of the 1935 Academy Technician's Branch Technical Bulletin on the subject. Due to its place in film history, in 2019, Becky Sharp was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the United States National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Now on to some people behind and in front of the camera. Ruben Mamoulian directed his first feature film, Applause, in 1929, which was an early sound film. His 1931 version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is often considered the best film version of Robert Louis Stevenson's story. His next two films earned him a great deal of acclaim, The Mark of Zorro in 1940 and Blood and Sand in 1941. Mamoulian's film directing career came to an end when he was fired from two consecutive films, Porgy and Bess in 59 and Cleopatra in 63, and he had previously been fired as director of uh, Laura in 1944. He began his directing career with the stage, so he returned to Broadway and directed the highly successful stage productions of Oklahoma and Carousel. He worked on only a few other theatrical productions, such as St. Louis Woman, which introduced Pearl Bailey to Broadway audiences before retiring. Star Miriam Hopkins was known for her versatility and appeared in a variety of roles. Her best-known roles included a pickpocket in the romantic comedy Trouble in Paradise, the bar singer Ivy in, in Mimoulian's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and the titular character in the drama The Story of Temple Drake. Hopkins' early films were considered pretty risque, produced in the years before the Motion Picture Production Code, or Hayes Code, was enforced. They featured issues that would be prohibited after 1934. For instance, the story of Temple Drake depicted a rape scene, and Designed for Living suggested Menage a Trois with Frederick March and Gary Cooper. She had starred on Broadway in the lead of Jezebel, a 1933 play, and when it was adapted as a 1938 film of the same name, Hopkins was bitterly disappointed that Betty Davis was chosen for the role she had played on stage. This began a feud between the two stars, which the motion picture studios publicized whenever they could. Hopkins and Davis actually co-starred in two films, The Old Maid in 39 and Old Acquaintance in 1943. 
In this period of time, uh, Hopkins believed that Davis was having an affair with her husband. Davis resented her jealousy and said that she had enjoyed shaking Hopkins in a seed and old acquaintance after Hopkins' character makes unfounded allegations against Davis. Press photos featured the two divas in a boxing ring, gloves up, with the director Vincent Sherman between them like a referee. In later interviews, Davis described Hopkins as a terribly good actress, but also terribly jealous. <laughs> Unlike many film actors of the time, Hopkins embraced the idea of television. She performed in teleplays from the late 40s through the late 1960s. In programs such as the Chevrolet Teletheater, Pulitzer Prize Playhouse, Lux Video Theater, and in episodes of The Investigators, The Outer Limits, and even an episode of The Flying Nun. <laughs> Her last film roles included Robert Redford's mother in The Chase and as an aging former Hollywood star in the horror film Savage Intruder. Lots of fun little bits of trivia about people in front and behind the character. They just all had like that, uh, they had that Hollywood life. <laughs> yeah, yes. It's funny, I mean, for them to publicize so heavily on that feud, obviously you have to think some of it was made up or some of it was just for publicity, which was very common back then. People, I mean, even now we hear about, oh yeah, so-and-so and so-and-so are dating because then it hits the headlines and their movie makes it bigger. Back then, it was, I think, it wasn't really understood how much that was done. So it's not as effective today as it was back then, because then if you're in the, the old gossip rag, you know, whatever the magazine was of the moment and showed up with all of this inf information about your private life, quote, private life, unquote, right. then all of a sudden it made your, your film much, much more successful than it would have been. Now they've overused it. And so people, well, I suppose some people don't pay as much attention to celebrity gossip as other people do. But, you know, if you see that, gosh, I can't even think of any good examples, but if you see that actor A is now dating actress B, then it's like, oh, but they're in that movie together. Oh, now you want to go and see it and see if you can see that the, you know, the on-screen spark is always actually because behind the scenes there was something going on. How much do we see that? I mean, they played that up so heavily with Twilight even. So, uh, and it's, yeah, it's still, it's still real life, quote, real life romance that draws people, more people often to the screen than if there's nothing going on behind the scenes. Oh, we're such scandal mongers. <laughs> no, I'm sure that in the beginning, this was probably something where like, oh, I'm really annoyed that I didn't get the part. And then some studio exec somewhere went, oh, she's, she's really angry about Play that. Play it up. Play, Play it, it up. up. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, girls. Grab her hair. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, there may be something more to it. I mean, there are obviously those, you know, reported that she was, uh, you know, insanely jealous and thought yes. she was having an affair. But honestly, at this time in Hollywood... It could have been true just as easily as not. So Honestly, you wonder, yeah. you know. Oh, certainly. Yeah. No, it, I think a lot of that. Well, I mean, gosh, we know how we now know how many romances were cooked up to hide the sexuality of somebody involved in the quote romance. So how much more, you know, oh, make it a lot easier to to hide it if we pretend that it is a big deal or it's not a big deal. You know, heaven only knows. Right. Heaven in the gossip rags. So Becky Sharp, obviously first time watch, I wasn't even aware of this film existing until we started kind of digging around looking for something. And I picked it pretty much just because of its historical significance, being the first film in the three strip Technicolor. So this was really the first true color film. 
I, yeah, it's funny. The color in the way that we understand color film. The way we do. I had sent you a link, and I don't recall right now what it was. Maybe we'll add it also to the show notes. Uh, I sent you just a short, like, five or ten minute video about Technicolor and about the history of it and how uh, people often think that The Wizard of Oz is the first Technicolor movie, and it really isn't. Um, there's some f- fantastic information in that. Uh, I think it's done by, I think it's done by just a YouTuber, like a you know a, a actually very talented YouTuber that just explains how all the things we think we know about the Wizard of Oz are wrong, but goes into some real depth about the Technicolor at the time. And it's interesting because they show some clips of the two color process compared with the th- three color process, and there's just a world of differences. Oh, yeah. It's HD versus, right. you know, analog. Or <laughs> and well, we've seen some uh, examples of the two color. Uh, again, going back to um, this film's come up for like the third time, and I think in, in, in three episodes, Dixiana, mm-hmm. where they do the, the Mardi Gras suddenly yes. goes into color that was uh most likely the two strip color mm-hmm. process and yeah it's kind of like wait is that in color oh that is in color yeah you know, kind of <laughs> washed out is it discolored or is it in color right <laughs> oh it turns out it's in color <laughs> yeah. there is no mistaking uh becky sharp <laughs> mm-hmm. it's yeah. almost actually at times it's almost garish there, so there are two different versions of it. The first version I watched was on YouTube, uh, Cult Cinema Classics or something like that. Shout out to them for putting those up. Thank you very much, by the way. Totally not a sponsor. Uh, <laughs> but the other one I watched was on Amazon, and it's a, the you know, quote, restored version right. of it. The much, much more brilliant version was the one on YouTube. Uh, you could like really see the color very sharply in it. The Mm. one that is on Amazon prime actually was very washed out in comparison. The scene that was most notably different was where she ends up on a stage singing a song. And in the uh, Amazon version of it or the prime version of it or whatever it is, the dress is kind of white. She's got that kind of shepherd girl, that porcelain shepherd girl figurine look, white hair, white dress, you know, and white flowers, whatever. But in the, in the other version of it, the, and I don't know whether it's an unofficial version or what, but it was all yellow. She mm. was all dressed in this bright yellow dress. And so there are different versions out there. And the the result of viewing one versus the other could actually be pretty significant. So just be aware when you're looking for a version of this that there are a couple of different versions. Yeah, I did see that there was one, and it might be the same one you're talking about on YouTube, or the, the called Cinema Classics or whatever it was, Um I actually took that as maybe being that was the one that's restored because it looked much brighter, very it crisp. Did. And yes. so that was the one I'm, I, I saw that and I was like, I don't know. Technically, that one would be considered public domain because it has been restored. Yes. So I think that would be under the copyright of whoever, whichever company restored it. So mm-hmm. I, I actually went and watched uh, one that looked a little bit more not as crisp, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um which I figured would probably be more of the original print that is public domain. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't watch the, uh, didn't, didn't see the big difference um, like you did, but I did see enough of it uh, just looking for the different versions online. I did see enough of that one where, yeah, the, the, the colors are almost too bright. It's like, yeah. the, they're not, these aren't colors found in nature. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say the one that we have posted is I think the punchier colors, uh, the, it's much more of a yellow dress than of a white dress, but 
it, I don't know how much of, I don't know how that's been touched up. I don't know what the differences are, but it is, again, there's a pretty significant difference in the color even there. Well, just like any other film you, you look for online, you're going to find all different varieties because <laughs> they've all been uh, uploaded and downloaded and ripped and re-ripped. And that's something that happens with a lot of public domain films. Mm-hmm. So, exactly. So yeah. I, I, I tried to find one that wasn't obviously like the remastered, but was still mm-hmm. a decent copy to put up mm-hmm. on our YouTube channel. Yeah, ironically, in this case, I think everything you find on YouTube is a better quality than what you find through traditional channels. Yeah, I have found that YouTube typically, I, I found more from YouTube than I do from archive.org anymore as far mm-hmm. as good video. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, <laughs> sometimes I think, well, we've got to get to the end of these soon. But no, I mean, there are <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of movies out there that we've barely scratched the surface. But anyway, so I picked this film strictly on the historical significance. Uh, I remember when we chose it, I thought you had said that you had watched this once before. So what's really funny is I thought I had all of it seemed super familiar to me and I was going, okay, I know the character's name. The description is really familiar. I've absolutely seen this movie. And then watching this movie, I was, I kept saying, I've never seen this movie before. What it turns out is there's actually a recent version of this story called Vanity Fair Ah. done, uh, I think, by I think by a British studio, but I could be mistaken about that. And uh, I think it's an excellent version of the story. I think it's well. Let's let's put it this way. In my notes, and this is a direct quote from my notes. This version of Becky Sharp has <laughs> it has all the historical accuracy of a Disney movie. <laughs> 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 Seriously, I basically also wrote it's a historical abomination. <laughs> it's Awful costuming, awful sets. It is a Hollywood set piece with a a very, very, very heavily influenced fashion from the era in which it was made. So if you are deciding that you're going to go to any kind of Regency or Napoleonic ball, this is not the movie to use for your resources. But of course, then, you know, there's the the acting and the manners and all of those things where this is a movie that was made in the 1930s from a play from a book and that was by the way written 30 or 40 years after it's supposed to take place so there's so many so many layers of interpretation but yeah i just mostly i kind of giggled when i wrote down it's got all the historical accuracy of a disney movie that's <laughs> no, a fantastic everybody's in pink right <laughs> so <laughs> i just realized that in my my notes in the beginning i didn't actually write a synopsis so i guess we should talk about a little bit of what this plot what this movie's actually about <laughs> I, yeah absolutely uh, i'll just pull a little bit from uh, the wiki page which is eh Okay, but as far as a description, but Becky Sharp, played by Miriam Hopkins, is a socially ambitious young lady who manages to survive during the background years of Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo. I'm not entirely sure. Yes, that does take place in the film, not integral to the plot, really. So I'm not sure why that keeps coming up in all the synopsises that I read. (laughs) <laughs> because it's the one historical event that is actually specifically named in the movie, uh, and so yes, people latch on to it. Yes. Well, Becky gradually climbs the British social ladder, overcoming poverty and class distinctions. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess that's what she's doing. 
And that's really, that's kind of like, that's it in a nutshell. It's just, it's about a woman who, when the film starts, we see her, I guess, effectively being um, kicked out or graduated out of an orphanage. Miss Sharp, the time has come. Oui, oui, mademoiselle. Je vais vous faire mes adieux. Be good enough to respond in the English tongue. Oh, dear, Miss Pinkerton, I'd quite forgotten that you can't understand French. For a moment, I thought I was talking to my dear dead mother, whose language it was. But who could blame me or any of us for thinking of you as a mother? Miss Shop, what I meant to say was, you are about to go forth into the world alone, unaided, to exist by the fruits of your labor. I hope you go with a feeling of gratitude for the gifts you have received within these walls. Oh, ma'am, what other feeling is possible? Not one of hatred, certainly. Not one of wanting to leave this place. Or a feeling that you took me because I was useful. Mercy, wasn't it a joy teaching me younger girls music and French and knowing how much money I saved for you? Oh, it was. It was. Goodbye, then. Oh, this dictionary for you. <laughs> she is. She's graduating from a ladies' school. I could give a little bit of, of history here. Is that so what she, that is? Yes. She is sent away to school, which was very common for ladies of a certain social status in this era. And then also, of course, for ladies not of a certain social status, but it was a different kind of school they went to. This, you can tell, is a very nice school. There are lots of young ladies. They're well-fed. <laughs> this is no Jane Eyre, by the way. They're all well-fed. And at the very beginning, it starts off with one girl is clearly going away. She's got her bonnet on. And one of her school chums is reading this passionate horrible poem to her about how much she'll be missed and and this you know sobbing the whole time she's reading this poem and eventually the young woman also breaks down this is not becky (laughs) this is becky's friend amelia and becky's sitting on the sidelines the whole time going oh these people are ridiculous and this is really where you get introduced to the character of her she's cheeky she's uh impudent she's difficult and uh, she starts off by insulting the the headmistress, I think mm-hmm. is the right term for it, and finishes by literally chucking the book that the headmistress gives her back <laughs> at the headmistress <laughs> as she leaves with her friend and her friend's brother. I, I like that the headmistress goes through this whole very fancy, well-thought-out speech when she gives Amelia her leather-bound, beautiful <laughs> dictionary. dictionary. <laughs> And then when it's time for uh, um, Becky's turn, she's like, oh, here, have a book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have this dictionary. And it just looks like one that she just, it was on the bottom of the of a pile somewhere. <laughs> I have to give you something because you're leaving, but oh, good riddance. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you definitely get the idea that this is uh, a, a person who's made herself unwelcome in polite society. See, I'm glad you actually picked up that it was supposed to be some sort of school. I I, th- I thought it was, ah, but it wouldn't have made sense to be an orphanage because the other woman has a family. Yeah, I didn't know what the family. hell. Yeah, and a yeah. wealthy family at that. <laughs> I couldn't figure out what the hell they were Yeah, it's <laughs> a leaving. school for young ladies is what it is. And, um, and this is pretty typical. So girls would be educated often indifferently at home up to a certain age. And then at the age that they needed to be finished, so made 
you know, appropriate to be married off to somebody and therefore preside over a drawing room, at that point, they'd be sent away to school so that they could learn things, really important things, like how to play the piano and how to speak French and how to draw so they could impress somebody so they could get married so they could pop out babies and send their own girls away to school because that is the end all and be all of society during this As it should be. (laughs) Oh, for those days, how we miss them. (laughs) So Becky, having even... so Becky even comments on how she's uh, saved the headmistress so much money because she, her mother was French, so she speaks fluent French, and saved the headmistress so much money by being able to teach the other girls French and other, I forget what the other things were that she taught, but it's very clear that Becky was here at the school, not as the daughter of a wealthy family, but paying her own way by working hard through the whole thing, and she resents every second of it. And when you first meet her, you're like, okay, so this is a clever girl. And you get that she's kind of weasels her way into uh, Josh, Joshua, Joss, Joseph, that's it. Uh, Amelia's brother is Joseph, played by the indomitable Nigel Bruce. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful man, I love him. Uh, and, there <laughs> and so him being, frankly, a fop, which is the right word for him. He's a dandy and a fop. She, and not a very... Um, let's say not a very athletic one no <laughs> he's very portly uh she she you know immediately ingratiates herself with this rather silly young man who also happens to be apparently her best friend's brother and they agree to take her off with them until she finds a position in the world and her the position she has chosen for herself immediately is to marry the richest man she can find right away and since joseph's handy she does her best to entangle him but since he's so incredibly silly, he can't even manage to get a proposal out. What a handsome best man you'll make. <laughs> Only I'll not be there to see you. I'll be gone by then. Not if Joseph Sedley has anything to do with it. How can Joseph Sedley keep me here? By offering you the continued hospitality of his father's home. You're too noble. Well, if you were to keep me here any longer, I should never want to leave. I dream that I could stay forever or see you about me or receive your roses. An idle dream, isn't it, Joseph? I, I... A foolish, unrealizable dream. But I must face the world, look for employment. Becky, Becky, don't, I... What is it, Joseph? Do you care? Do I care? Why, when I, when I think of you without a home, I, I, I'm completely a man, a man. I, I... So then Becky, after being basically told, hey, you're never going to get Joseph because our father won't allow it. She takes herself off to uh, a position at, with the Crawleys, which uh, which are a completely insane family. Um, the I believe it's a Marquis, Sir, Sir Pitt Crawley is the... And it's funny because I when I was watching this, I expected things to go a certain way because I had watched Vanity Fair and it does sort of go the same way. But this is a very fast paced, high level Cliff's Notes version of this story. If you watch this movie expecting to, uh, you know, get to see the cinematography representing the story that you've read and it's, you're going to be extremely disappointed. It's not, it's not even a faithful. I think that the storyline is accurate, but it's so 
it skips through so much of the story with so little depth to the characters that it's almost I, I wrote it's it feels like a pantomime more than actual acting. There's so many scenes in this where Becky collapses in dramatic tears because, oh, my mama, she was such a good woman, yada, yada. And then she walks out of the room. And of course, she's putting it all on. And we know that as the audience. But that people buy her dramatic reactions. And, and that's not to say that Miriam Hawkins isn't a good actress. There are moments in this movie where you really believe she is kind of in anguish. Only near the end. Only with Rodden. But <laughs> Christopher is giving me faces like, nope, nope. Go <laughs> ahead, you can interrupt. <laughs> I'm gonna wait till you, I was gonna wait till you're done. There are moments where she is acting well, but there are so many scenes in this movie where she's intentionally acting badly, with the point of showing that the people that believe her are suckers, and it makes it feel a lot more silly than like an actual telling of a story. It feels much more like a pantomime. The entire film feels like it's, you feel like you're watching something that's been set for like one and a quarter speed or something. Yes. Even all the dialogue, I feel like there is probably some snappy dialogue in here, but it goes by so fast and is followed up by the next scene so fast. It's like they said, we have this amount of time and we have to tell twice the story. So just pick up the pace. And now you know how I feel every time I watch the Kira Knightley version of Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> That's exactly how it feels to me. Nobody who's saying these words understand the meaning of their lines. No. They're just reading them and then hopping up in front of the camera, saying them as fast as they can, and then rushing off the set. And that's like, exactly what oh. this felt like. It, it was a it was a three hour story, and they wanted to tell it in an hour and a half. That's exactly that's exactly what it, this is. This is actually the Becky Sharp stories. My understanding, and I could be mistaken, but my understanding is there are several books about Becky Sharp. And William Makepeace Thackeray wrote, I guess, multiple books about her. And in, in, I believe the character is clever. She's witty. She's intelligent. She's ruthless. And you do get some of that ruthlessness in this. But um, I don't know whether it's a reflection of the code uh, at the time this movie was made or whether I don't have a, I, I admittedly don't have a very good understanding of the character. I haven't read the books. But I don't know if it's the code that they decide to make her really love Rodden at the end. She does end up marrying the second son of Sir Pitt Crawley, and apparently falling in love with him. And they do seem to really love each other, but it's more important to Becky that she have lots and lots of money than that she have her husband's respect and or anybody else's real respect. She wants to be in and she wants to live well and she wants to live fast. That's how it's presented in this movie. Now, whether that's accurate to the character as written by Thackeray or not, I couldn't tell you. I'd be very interested to know. That's the kind of character that she's supposed to be, but her actions don't follow that terribly well. Mm -hmm. She wants to live in this lap of luxury, but she has absolutely no problem with her husband's going off and gambling you know, all their money away. Despite the fact that she's living a wealthy lifestyle... She's in debt the entire film, whether she's Whoa. poor or rich. <laughs> Welcome to America. I mean, come on. 
<laughs> Sorry, I'm not going to make this political, I promise. But <laughs> but it, it partly, so... <laughs> okay, put your top hat on. I'm going down this road. I've been reading a lot of Anthony Trollope lately. <laughs> and so it was also written around the similar time. And so uh, a common, common theme of writing during this time period is gambling leading to ruin. It's, uh, it's viewed as a, uh, gosh, uh, I can't think of a better word. I apologize for using this one. It's viewed as a pandemic of its age. So in this time period, in the 1840s to the 1860s, especially dissipated young men in Britain, what they did for fun was they went to a club at night and what you do at the club is you're either eating or you're gambling. That's all there is to do. There's not, there's no TV. You can't ride horses at night. (laughs) I mean, I suppose you could, but mm, (laughs) tree branches. So, (laughs) and You know, if you're if you're not dancing with people and you're not going to be dancing with women at your club, you might go to a ball now and then. But even even at at big social events, even at balls and at at parties, there was always a card room. And even though it wasn't good society to gamble, it was extremely common for it to happen. At least that's how it's presented in the literature at the time. So. For all of the soldiers to be sitting around gambling together, for all the young men, for all the men at the club to be sitting around gambling together, usually it's supposed to be nominal, but it was entirely, I I think, frequent for people to become really badly in debt at the time. And especially if you're pretending to be above your station, if you're pretending to be wealthy, which they're pretending very, very hard to be wealthy. They have no money, but they want everybody to think they have money. Curry and Carter, 37 pounds for livery. (laughs) And here's a little billy-do for 800 or they'll sue. Bagatelle. What's wrong, Rodan? Everything. I had a nasty night at the club. Almost came to blows with Deuce Ace. Others had to separate us and all that sort of rot. But why? He kept hounding me and threatening me about the 400 pounds that I owe him. He demanded immediate payment. Well, at pretty time he picked, we haven't sixpence. And I know, that's the devil of it. After the riot became a matter for the entire club. Naturally, a debt of honor. I was instructed to pay immediately. You go away for a few days and the whole thing will blow over. No, it won't. This is not like owing money to a shopkeeper. This is a gambling debt. I pay or I'm expelled. Captain Dobbin is in charge of collecting it. Who? William Dobbin. He represents the club. Oh. Do say, that little swine. Why, he was here last week and he never even mentioned the debt. He and I gambled while you played billiards. Gambled? What did you play? Dice. And I won. For heaven's sake, you didn't buy any... Loaded dice. Oh, come, come. Now, I promised you I never would. A promise is a promise. Why, I don't even know where they are. I seem to have lost them. Why do you look at me like that? What do you see? That I become a liar, a cheat? Oh, no, no. But how can I help worrying Becky? So where is all this leading us? Is there any end? Are we getting anywhere? Who knows? Who cares? We live elegantly on nothing a year. Look at all the splendor. It won't last. We are paying heavily, little bits of ourselves. Well, it's worth the price. Women who cut me last year will give their eyes to be where I am now because they envy me. This is what I've worked for. I won't give it up. Don't ask me to. Oh, darling, enjoy it with me. And that's, you know, an indicator again of Becky's character that she doesn't have any money and she's willing to lie to people to get what she wants, knowing that she's never going to pay them. But what does she want? I mean, it, it really feels like the social status is or the appearance of the social status is more important than the actual money. It, and I think that's exactly the point for her. 
I think for for this character and not not as much for Rodden. Rodden is in it just to give her whatever she wants. And what she really wants is and I think she even says it at one point, like she doesn't want she wants people to envy her, not to respect her as much as to envy her. And mm-hmm. she wants people to be desperate to be her. And it's really funny. I mean, I'm going to use this word and I'm going to use it very intentionally. She wants to be an influencer. She doesn't care if the if the window on the plane is a real window or if it's a toilet seat, as long as people envy her for it. And that I mean, Becky Sharp is the original influencer, I suppose. <laughs> and she's trying so, so hard to look like she belongs that she doesn't really care if people really believe it or not as long as she gets to be at the party. It's just that she seems to go almost go out of her way to risk that by spending all the money, by sending her husband out to gamble. <laughs> She's risking it at every step of the way, but I guess maybe that's the just another aspect of being, oh, look how rich and fabulous I am because I don't care about this or that doesn't matter. He can go and gamble. That's fine. Well, in, in, in that time, I mean, if you think, think about riverboat gamblers, and that's, you know, a later time period than is being presented here. But people would be riverboat gamblers with the idea that they were going to make money by gambling. And I think that it starts out that way. And especially when, you know, war is called, she says, oh, this is great. We get to leave all our debtors behind and we can go and we can make a lot of money while we're out there. What she means is we can play cards every night with the other soldiers and come out ahead. And they're not doing anything. They're not making or producing anything. They're not working. Her work is to charm and confuse the other soldiers to the point that her husband can win against them at cards. That's her idea of getting the money. So it's uh, I, it's nuanced. It's not a concept that we really have these days. I've, I mean, not most of us anyway. <laughs> not unless you're actually, I mean, and, and they didn't view gambling as an addiction back then unless you really did lose your entire family's fortune. Now we see it as an actual addiction, but back then it was seen more as you know, a, a quote, harmless pastime, as long as you weren't losing your shirt. And mm-hmm. they just expected well, money to come and go. I was amazed at the uh, the values of the money that he would come back and, oh, I owe 500 pounds. Mm-hmm. I'm like, 500 pounds? That's a huge amount back then. That's enormous. What the hell are you gambling? What game are you gambling this yeah. on? Well, I think they were going off and playing billiards as well as <laughs> cards. And it's like... <laughs> It should only be like, what, 50 cents a game, a ball, maybe, not, <laughs> well, <laughs> not 100 pounds. Yeah, I mean, but that's part of it. That's part of showing the dissipation in this that they are engaged in is that they're – and I think that those amounts are built up over time. I don't think he goes out one night and is supposed to have lost 500 pounds in one night. I think that it's more he has a streak of bad luck over time, quote, bad luck. And after, you know, two weeks, now he suddenly owes people 500 pounds and they want the money and Mm -hmm. not suddenly, but now, you know, so it it is, there's so much nuance to this. It's, it's, it's probably too bad that I've been reading (laughs) as much Anthony Trollope as I have, because the insight that I have to it now is like based all on that. And so now I'm going, oh yeah, no, gentlemen, it'll club betting. That's a real thing. What you didn't do, what you really never, ever did was cheat. That was not okay. 
And, of course, what does Becky do? Well, we don't see her do it, but we find out that she did do it. Yes. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the other thing is I think that's where I lose respect for her is where she she just, man, like, I don't don't really get her obsession with Rodden, but whatever. But she (laughs) just jerks that guy around. <laughs> well, it he got her where she needed to be, mm. and if he no longer fulfilled that function, she'd drop him like a hot rock. And well, and that's the thing we're meant we're told not to believe. That's the thing that we're told to disbelieve at the point where he finds her in a compromising situation. Oh, Rodden, listen to me. If I've ever done anything, those pearls. Take them off. I can explain. I've nothing to hide. All the world might have been here. Don't hate me. Let them go. I don't want them. It's only you I want. I love you. I love you. I won't let you go. I'll fight for you. I couldn't have done anything else. I had to help. I had to do something for you, for both of us. Don't hate me. Try to understand. Oh, my darling, I'm yours. Nothing else matters. My love for you is the only real thing I have in my life. Don't take that away from me. Don't leave me. You can't leave me. I'm your wife. Not my wife. Just someone I was once married to. But that's over with. Run! And we know that she hasn't actually cheated on him. Although my husband and I had a conversation about whether or not she cheated. Because he's watching this with me and he's like, well, but he didn't actually cheat. Or she didn't actually cheat. And I was like, well, okay, honey. <laughs> but if I if I sent you away and was like, oh, yeah, go go watch the new Avengers movie. I'll be fine. I'll just hang out at home and read a book. And then and instead you have dinner with a with a, <laughs> with a, a male man, friend. With a man who has given me money. He, you know, we had that whole conversation and he was like, yeah, I'd be uncomfortable with that. I said, I hope you would, yeah. right? <laughs> I certainly <laughs> hope so. Otherwise, we're going to have to have a different conversation ourselves. <laughs> but yeah, even though she's technically not cheating on him, she is in, and especially in this time, she's in an extremely compromising position. You wouldn't be alone with a person that you weren't related to, a, certainly not a man that you weren't alone with a person of the opposite sex that you weren't related to, period. And if he had given you money, there, the implications are just, you don't even have to say them, it's obvious. I, I think the right word for Becky Sharp is she's just the worst. She's just yes. the worst. There's nothing about her that you like. You know, and, it, and it's hard for the audience to sit here and look at her. And you see these men that are just willing to just lose everything to be with her. Yeah, sardine lovers. They're just, like, attracted to the weirdest. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not and not a single moment do you sit there and go, yeah, I can see it. Mm-hmm. No. She's terrible. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near her. Well, and I mean... It, so, like, like with the the real antagonist of the story, Stain, Lord Stain, which I, mm. I is hilarious to me when they pronounced it Lord Stain because it's it's spelled S T E Y N E, but it's in my head I can't unhear S T A I N because he is kind of a stain on society, but, <laughs> and I have to imagine Thackeray did that intentionally. He, he even he says at one point. Didn't you hear something? You heard your own wicked little heart. No, no. How did you do it, Becky? How the devil did you ever catch me fancy? Because there isn't an ounce of sweetness or goodness about you. That's your secret. Oh wait, wait! We must drink to that. 
to your marvelous portrait of me, to your shrewd understanding. And it's true. Even the worst guy in the room is like, how am I attracted to you? You're just terrible. But he's at the same moment trying very hard to press himself upon her. So, oh, gosh. Yeah, she's just the worst. And then she's got this this gorgeous friend, Amelia, who's actually sweet and actually kind and actually generous. And Oh, yeah, I would absolutely be banging down oh, Amelia. me door. too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, gen- genuinely, she is the best person in this movie. Never mind she's married to an absolute heel who is also, for some reason, completely madly infatuated with Becky. Right. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, the best thing that could have happened to Amelia is when her husband dies in battle. Oh my goodness. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's really sad for her. And I, and I it's another yeah, I am going to save this I'm going to save the comment I was just going to make for our for our rating, but it just is she's it, it's this is a this is an interesting movie. And I don't I'm not sure how much we want to tell about the end. But I will say at the end of the movie, and, and the reason I'm quoting him is because he said it perfectly. My husband, it gets to the end of the movie and it ends. And he goes, so she didn't change at all through the entire movie. There's no, no. point to this. And I said, nope. nope, she's exactly the same. Nope. Throw in the book at her headmistress as she is at the very end of the movie. She never changes. And I think what's confusing to me is that she's not charming and she's not a heroine and you don't like her at any point at all, ever. No, and she's the woman you're forced to follow through the entire (laughs) film. Yeah, I would. The entire film. Yes. I don't think there's a moment when she's not on screen. Yeah, at the end when, uh, and I won't say why she leaves the room, but at the end when Amelia leaves the room, I wanted so desperately for the camera to follow her. I was like, yes, let's go see this. I really want to see this next thing happen. And then you don't get to see it happen. And, I, and and instead what you see is just Becky being Becky. And you're like, ugh. You get the feeling like they, they were trying to say she had like learned her lesson and now <laughs> she was going to live happily with Joseph. I honestly feel like that's the, the film was... That's what the film wanted you to walk away with, and you don't. Yeah, I, I sort of took it as, well, gosh, it would have been better if she just married him in the first place because they could have just gone, up, gone off and been completely silly together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it's an extremely similar feeling. Like, she didn't do anything of value with her life. Like, the, nothing, nothing changed for her. She didn't get what she wanted. And what she did get that she wanted, she didn't get a keep. And yeah, it's it's a it's a perplexing movie. Yeah, well, and does she? I mean, does in the end, doesn't she sort of get what she wants because she's marrying Joseph, who's a a well-to-do. Well, she's always British running gentleman. away with him. I don't know that she's gonna. Marry him. Well, that's true. Yeah. Well, we don't know what the history is gonna be. We really, yeah. we really don't. I, and I again, maybe that maybe that comes up in one of the later books or something. But yeah, I, it's funny. I Thinking about this as a play instead of as a movie, I wonder if some of the some of the inadequacies are because of the the medium. Yeah, do you think something's getting lost in translation? I wonder if that's not the case. I feel like it, maybe had she been portrayed differently, she might on stage and maybe by a different actress have felt more more tragic or more noble but the way she's portrayed in this movie she just seems just 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 the worst she's the worst no she's she's horrible (laughs) she is 
And it's another thing too. I wonder if the play takes its time a little more. That's a, whereas yeah. with this one, they, maybe it's because they were using this new film and it was really expensive. <laughs> they had and to it was rush like, go, through. go, go, go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, an hour and a half in a typical play is what two hours. It's very mm-hmm. possible that there's some bits that are lost, but even so, I mean, I think it's a it's an unsatisfying story to begin with because, you know, we've already definitely let the cat out of the bag that she's not with Rodden at the end, and she doesn't reform in any way at all. She doesn't seem to learn anything, at, no lessons. And she, yeah, it, it's, I'm trying to think if I've ever read a, a book or seen a movie that you're, I, and I know there are other movies like this. I know there are movies where you get to the end of the movie and you're like, these people are exactly the same as at the beginning. There's no satisfaction to be had here. I, I know there are others <laughs> like this, but this is the only one I can think of at the moment. It definitely stands out. The only highlight I had in this entire film, I think, was probably Nigel Bruce. <laughs> I, because he's just, you know, what's really funny, until he actually spoke, I didn't recognize him. Oh yeah, I'm so used to seeing him with in the mustache, the, in the Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> yes, with the, the mustache and everything. Yeah, and, and uh, Basil Basil Rathbone must be a really tall individual because <laughs> I always imagined Watson being much shorter than Holmes. Oh. And in this film, Nigel Bruce is towering over everybody. Oh. <laughs> he's a tall, gent- he's a tall guy. And I'm like, and how tall is ba- Basil? Must be like seven feet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, either that or they gave him lifts. <laughs> they gave yeah. him shoe lifts. I'm not sure what it was. It's just so funny. I, I just was so used to seeing him as the Doctor Watson character. That it, it it took me just a few minutes, even after hearing him speak. Oh wait, that's Nigel Bruce. Mm-hmm. I knew he was in the film, but it's like, oh, that's him. Yeah, it was. But yeah, he was a. He's kind of a joy to watch. He's still. It it's that voice and the way he speaks. It's it's Nigel. Bruce. Yeah. Well. Okay. So, and I had that exact experience with Glenda, the Good Witch. <laughs> the moment <laughs> she spoke, I went, "Wait, is that, that's Glenda, the Good Witch." Where? <laughs> And we had to, you know, so of course we look it up and of course it was really her. But I actually really thought, I really, really thought that was a voice she put on for the Good Witch character. No, no, that's her real (laughs) voice. She really talks like this, everyone. And I can't do it. I can't. But she has that all, like, if you had to have a long conversation with her, you would want to just stab your eardrums out. <laughs> I'm sure she's a wonderful lady. Please don't take that as judgment against her personally. But I could not believe that was her real voice. That just startled me so much. Unless she's just using the same voice for both Legit. both characters. I will yeah, accept she, that explanation. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, we can only hope. <laughs> I, but, you know, I mean, well, gosh, we've all seen uh, Singing in the Rain, right? <laughs> And I can't stand him. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, it, it must have happened. There must have been actors, actresses that had voices that just didn't translate well. Oh yeah, famously, I mean, the the from the silence of the talkie, there was a lot of big stars and starlets that uh, were like the thing through yes. the silent. And then when it came to sound, everyone went, "Yeah, no, yeah, uh, <laughs> not this time." <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> The, the one character, the other character I enjoyed, but I, I actually pulled this in, this enjoyment over from having watched Vanity Fair was um, was Sir Crawley's 
I, we don't th- really know who she is in this. It's just it breezes by so fast. Sir Crowley's, I believe, sister. And she's this extremely rich lady that somehow, and we have no idea how, somehow Becky ends up with this extremely rich lady and they end up going through her chest and finding all this stuff, all this actress paraphernalia. But um, yeah, I, it's she's funny, but she's only on screen for a couple of minutes and her interactions and the way that she talks to her family are funny. She's the sister of, or the aunt She's of one of the men Rodden's that aunt, which makes me think it, that Rodden's it's Crawley's sister, but maybe yeah. it's their mother's sister. Right. And he gets her like a job as her companion or something yeah. to help her. And yeah. And so, yeah, they, they pull out um, Becky's uh, chest and they find all <laughs> this paraphernalia. And oh, oh, I can't believe someone would wear this. And they find a photo of what looks like her mother as a showgirl mm-hmm. or a singer, or a dancer or something like mm-hmm. that. Honestly, that's another thing, too, is I would have liked more of where Becky came from. Give, give us something to this woman other than just being a horrible human being. Yeah. <laughs> give us some background or give her give us some motivation for why she wants to be this, you know, social ladder climbing, mm-hmm. you know, what did she come from? Yeah. We really don't get any of it. We are to just assume and we get these little snippets about her mother being a, uh, you know, a, some sort of performer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I I don't recall there being any other background. I mean, obviously, the background we're provided by Becky herself is so completely unbelievable, you know, because the way that it's delivered and, and then her. Well, and I think we get multiple backgrounds. Mm. I, I don't think we get the same story twice when she talks about her <laughs> That's That would be in keeping with her character, not to tell the truth. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, I totally agree. There's there. It's so hard to sympathize with her. Allison Skipworth was uh, Miss Crawley, and I was looking to see if we'd seen her in any other films. Um, and I don't think we have, but she has a, a pretty extensive career. Mm-hmm. So, uh, watch some films from the twenties uh, and thirties. You're going to uh, you're going to bump into her. Oh, she's in Raffles, a movie I've long been meaning to watch because guess who's in it? <laughs> oh God, you guys that are listening, you have to know it's David Niven. <laughs> I was gonna say which which one is this? Gonna, this is a Niven. It's gotta isn't be it? Niven. Yes. <laughs> actually, that's not true. Is that right? I think actually it's not true. I think he applied or he tried out for Raffles, but ended up not getting it. Oh, I've got my. I may have my actors mixed up. Looks like it's Ronald Coleman. Oh dear. Yep. Sorry. You guys take away my card now. Uh oh. I got overexcited. I just remember reading in his biography something about wanting so badly to act in Raffles, but all the same. Um, yeah, no, nothing to like about Becky. <laughs> Let's go back to that. Oh, well, here we go. A, a 1939 version of Thank Raffles you. stars David Niven. Wrong version of Raffles. Okay, I, yep. I get my card back. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it... Yeah, is it... <laughs> should we just go ahead and try to rate this think, thing? Yeah, I think the only thing left to do is just to keep besmirching Becky's character, and I think that's well and thoroughly done. Yes, yes. As I said, I picked this film due to its historical significance, and outside of its historical significance, I cannot recommend this film at all. I, I guess it gets a point for uh, you know being the, as I said, almost at times garish, uh, Technicolor marvel <laughs> that it is. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, just a single Othel. I did not enjoy this at all. <laughs> I I really didn't. I I feel like had it slowed down. 
had it given me a chance to actually pick out some of the dialogue, I think there might be some stuff in here. Mm-hmm. I've probably heard this dialogue in better films mm-hmm. is in this type of dialogue. I, I just, I didn't enjoy the film. Yeah. I, I didn't like Becky. I didn't like what she was doing. I didn't like how she was, you know, her manipulations. And like you said, she, there's no character growth whatsoever. She's a horrible human being from the first time you see her to the last time you see her. And you're stuck with her on the screen <laughs> the entire film. The whole time. <laughs> and I, yeah, no, I, I didn't like this film and I, I wouldn't recommend it unless you were just dead set on seeing the first three color film. Yeah. <laughs> I would absolutely go go ahead just go watch Wizard of Oz or uh, or Robin Hood. Uh, oh, go, yeah. go watch Robin oh, Hood. Gosh. That's a nice yes. bright color. Great movie. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, also inaccurate costuming, but great movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, so for me, I think I, I do have a note that, you know, for Becky everything is just a big adventure. It's like she's living that uh for lack of a better uh, explanation. She's living that James Dean lifestyle, that live and die young, you know, and and um, and it's almost like you really think that she does think she's just going to die young. <laughs> like, and I think with that explanation on her, she makes a little bit of sense. But I, I, I have to fault the movie. Having watched another version of the same story, I think you, I think they made her so unlikable in this version that I, I didn't hate her in the other version I watched. Watching her in Vanity Fair, of course, played by a different different action, actress. I can speak. <laughs> played by a different actress. Much more recent film techniques, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I at least found her more compelling. But in this version, it, it, it feels like everything that I dislike about an adaptation of a book to a movie. You miss all of the the really good dialogue you miss all of the backstory you miss all of the character development and character description and the end result is i i want to be able to give it two stars (laughs) i want to can you i yeah exactly and that's exactly (laughs) it right i don't i really really don't think uh, that miriam hopkins is a horrible actress i love that nigel bruce is in it there are enough people in this movie and the director of this movie is has done enough that I desperately really want to give it a better rating and I can't. And that's really frustrating. Usually in this, you know, in this segment, this part of the, of the thing I can talk myself around to an extra Othel, (laughs) or maybe I talk myself down from an extra Othel. But the thing is, I think that you, you have so many better options of movies to watch by the director, by the actors, by the writer, <laughs> even by from this very book, there's so many better options. And, and there's nothing in this movie that makes me say, you know what, you could skip it except for this one thing, this one thing you really should watch it for. The, there is no one thing. So yeah, I've got to go with you. I think this is a one Othel for me as well. And, yeah. I, and I'm really disappointed. I would love to have liked anything about this movie. And, and I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's the source material that Becky is generally so, genuinely so horrible that it's impossible to like her, or if it is just this ad- adaptation. But in either case, they they both fall really flat in this one. Yep. So uh, should we apologize formally for having people watch this movie? 
Yeah, if you watched this before the episode, so so sorry. <laughs> don't we don't I'm really sorry we made you watch it. You got some film history. You learned a little bit about some some actors, hopefully, and director. And uh, of course, you know the history of Technicolor, which is I think fascinating when you start looking into that. But um, it's it is for that reason worthy of being, you know, cataloged by the Library of Congress. But beyond that, I don't think there's a lot else to recommend it. No, absolutely not. I I like the idea of her, as you said, living the James Dean lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You know. And if it weren't for the fact that she was actively destroying other people's lives in doing so. <laughs> yes. Valid point. <laughs> I, I would not have an issue with it. If this was just a movie about a woman that let's look, who's just trying to live the life, yeah. I'd be fine with it. Yeah. But the fact that she's willing to do that and destroy people. To the person that she does seem to love the most in the world. To drag him down with her. And even under the guise of trying to, to save him is foolish and and not to get back into more discussions and everything but i had a hard time being convinced that she did care for anybody i i didn't know when she was being sincere and when she was just playing the game yeah totally agree single othel from both of us which i think is <laughs> a hard no <laughs> it's, it's a it almost first time never happens. happened and certainly i think in it's a happened long yeah time. as you say i think it's happened once before and I think maybe I think maybe we've had a couple where we've been like one and a half because it's not really the worst movie ever. And it's really disappointing. There, It's disappointing because I feel like it's not I feel like it's like the set is the sets are awful. The costuming is awful. I feel like the acting is not it, it's really weird i feel like everybody's acting besides becky's is actually really good but because she's so disingenuous you think she's not a good actress you really right. think that the char- that the the actress is not a good actress everything about it is i the right word and it's an archaic use of the word but everything about it is revolting <laughs> <laughs> it really is so oh so one othels from us both that's uh, first in a while Thanks for joining yeah. us for it. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't think of the last. I can't even think of the last time I gave something a single Othel. It's been a. It's bit. been a long. It time. really has. Yeah. I I actually remember. This is again kind of di- diving back into our like our ten year anniversary. And we were talking with Barry and everything when we talked about UFO Target Earth. <laughs> I think I actually gave it an Othel for trying, and I think both of you gave it none. <laughs> We were like, can we give it zero? And I mean, that was this one, right? Well, I mean, the best thing you can say about this movie is, well, they made a whole movie. It had an, well, it didn't have an ending. Well, I mean, kind of had an ending, but it kind of didn't have an ending. I, it didn't have, you're shaking your head. I don't think, I guess it didn't really have an ending, did it? No, it kind of, it, it ended the same way it started. This thing's just like a loop. Well, yeah, I genuinely, right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. No, uh, can you give it zero? <laughs> the best thing you can say about it is somebody made it. <laughs> that, right. That's what you... Well, like I said, I gave it a point for the technical achievement of being color go. film. Fair that's enough. That's it. I... 1935 or whatever it was. Go. The first one. Yeah. Good job making color a thing, guys. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for this month. Uh, I guess the last thing we need to really do is uh, say happy holidays to everybody. Oh, this one will be coming out in December. Yes. So um, happy holidays to everybody. Hope you have a fun and safe uh, Christmas and New Year, Hanukkah, and whatever, all you know, all the holidays Kwanzaa. that fall. 
Yes, all the holidays that fall, whatever you choose to celebrate or not celebrate, hope you have a good day off. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, here's to the airing of the grievances. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I guess, oh my gosh, if, if this airs in December, we'll say, uh, we'll see you next year. Oh, yeah. We'll talk to everybody in 2023. Woo-hoo, on to year 11. Continuing year Continuing 11. Continuing year 11. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Since our anniversary is in October, it kind of throws it off, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. But yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you all for joining us. It's been, it's, it's so funny. Even the worst movies are fun to talk about when we're talking about them here. So thank you very much oh, for joining absolutely. us. Yep. Thank you very much, everybody. And thank you, Lydia. Always a pleasure. I do my best. <laughs> Anyway, folks, if you uh, have any thoughts on this or any episode, like I said at the beginning of the show, send them to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com or come follow the link to any of our social media platforms and leave some comments there. We'd love to have the conversations with you. And uh, yeah, if you just want to come and rant about Becky Sharp, <laughs> join we us. Will, we will rant with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. We will continue to rant. Until then, we'll talk to everybody next month. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye, Bye everyone. <laughs> you- Bye, everyone. <laughs> Sorry, I was to say, now you have to keep it in. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> Hitting stop. All right. <laughs>